Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? In this series, I'm talking to artists, musicians, filmmakers, actors, art lovers and other creatives. I'm exploring how curiosity and courage not only creates great art and fuels the arts, but cultivates a healthy mind too. These same attitudes are cultivated in mindfulness practice with scientific and evidence-based results in the treatment of depression, stress and anxiety. So I'm asking, can art save us and help change the global epidemic of mental illness? And my guest this week is Otis Mensah. He's the first hip-hop poet to be awarded a Poet Laureate title in the UK by the City of Sheffield. He has had numerous commissions and his live performances include the Glastonbury Music Festival. Otis describes his poetry as breaking down barriers, smashing the stuffy stereotype and reminding people that poetry is meant to be for the people. He could also be described as the most courageously vulnerable artist of the 21st century. Hello Otis and and welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me and for the intro. (laughs) (laughs) You're very welcome. It's just been phenomenal reading your work, your poetry, looking at your performances. Um, It's it's quite astonishing, actually, that the the breadth and wealth of of your work already. What I was interested in, um, Mm -hmm. just to begin with, is when you discovered your love for poetic vulnerability, where, where this all began. Yeah, sure. So um, I think the journey uh, really began for me as a teenager. Uh, I was looking for some sort of expressionistic outlet, sort of dealing with the existential angst that you do as a teenager um, and and sort of quarrel and wrestles with identity. And um, I think wanting to, to sort of grow into my own skin and, and understand what it was that I was interested in, want, uh, wanted to understand what art spoke for me um, and what what I gravitated towards naturally as a, as a sort of intuition, uh, I guess, visceral based thing. And, um, I, I started to, I, I don't know, experiment. I started to write raps with, with friends in the schoolyard and it was very fun. It was very youthful. Um, it felt meaningful. Uh, but I, I did notice that, um, I believe I was injecting my own sort of insecurities into my art form, uh, spe- especially as it surrounded my peers. And, um, I guess what I saw at the time as sort of like uh, a shield of pretense sort of continued. And I realized that what I needed in terms of uh, being able to express myself freely and I guess uh, to sort of lift the burden of of whatever it was that I was going through, uh, I needed some form of honesty, some form of radical honesty. And I might not have had the words and the canon to verbalize that at the time. Um, but I think... Uh, me falling in love with hip hop music and uh, hip hop poetry really spoke volumes for uh, saying that that's what I needed. Um, and I, I got into hip hop artists like The Roots. Um, I got into hip hop artists like Kid Cudi, who notoriously spoke openly about uh, depression and anxiety and um, perhaps feeling a little like a social pariah amongst their peers, uh, especially in a landscape that uh in a uh, kid could he especially in a landscape that didn't um really allow him to do that i think a lot of his peers weren't really um i guess engaging in that level of vulnerability that he was so that sort of stood out as a as a testament for me and and and, and sort of allowed me to see that oh oh you can it can be cool to be honest and open and vulnerable and not only can it be cool but it can also have a radical impact on your on your own mental health and on your own artistry you know yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting how we can change meanings. So taking vulnerability as an example, um, yeah. you know, when actually its relationship um, is is so um, connected to courage. But there mm. are problems around identity, particularly, I think, with the model of masculinity, where courage is always around bravery and not expressing emotions, because that would be a sign of weakness, for example. So what kind of identity tensions do you think you were struggling with when you were growing up? 
Um, what kind of identity tensions? That's a big existential question. Uh, I think, um, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, uh, tensions around a sort of not feeling, not feeling comfortable in my own skin. Um, I, I think I was naturally an, uh, an introvert in, in, in perhaps a world that tells you, uh, you know, introversion is weird or, 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 you know, it's like, it's not the normal thing to, to do. I think I also had a slightly different, um, I guess, uh, uh, passions, uh, some slightly different passions than the people around me. Um, I think a lot of my passions became hyper-specific. So when I found something that I love, like hip hop music, I focused really into it. Um, and sometimes that can make it hard to, to sort of step outside of that and, and, and relate on a social level. I think also my natural inclination was to sort of isolate myself and, and, and I guess be, be more creative uh, on my own, as opposed to engaging in sort of like typical, uh, social settings. Um, so I think that, there on the surface definitely created some sort of um i don't know uh, social tension or sort of um some sort of otherness uh and then of course you know it's like growing up as a as a, a black mixed race person in in the uk um i was wrestling with uh with uh r- racialization and othering and and all that sort of mixed in a pot together um where hip hop really did allow me to find solace in that hip hop really gave me a language to sort of understand my own state of existence. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I think, um, I think that that transitional point as a, as a teenager into early adulthood was uh, really impactful for me as I started to discover the art and, and, and delve into it in more depth. And was that the shift from where you talk about feeling like an outcast. Yeah, I mean, you know, what I think perhaps uh, happened is that um, it, it took a lot of the tension off. Having an art form that I could relate to took a lot of the tension off, that which not only um, meant that I could sort of, uh, uh, ha- like I said, have a, have a language and a canon to understand uh, what was going on around me politically, socially, and what I felt politically and socially, even even on a surface level, even though it was the um, the the sowing of those seeds, perhaps not in depth, but uh, not only did hip hop do that for me, but it also um, allowed me to uh, understand that it wasn't so um, it wasn't so peculiar that I was interested in the things that I was interested in, that I was um, that I felt the way that I felt. And perhaps there was reasons, societal reasons to why I felt like that. Um, so, and I think, I think what it, what it made me do is feel less so like an outcast uh, in the end and, and made, made me feel like I had a sense of community um, that perhaps wasn't bound by, by ge- geography and, and the social geography, but perhaps was bound by something a little more metaphysical um, and something that, that could sort of like trans, transcend borders as I started to engage with art across the globe, across Europe, across the internet. Um, and yeah, I, it made me feel less alone. So in, in turn, it allowed me to function better with my, my peers. It allowed me to function better in, in, in school, which is why often I advocate for poetry, um, as a form of, in, uh, as a form of engagement that can sort of, um, you know, help towards a, a, a flourishing emotional intelligence and a flourishing, um, I guess, emotional understanding of oneself and 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 one's uh, society and social landscape. Um, just because I think it gives us a second to under, understand to, uh, I guess, value ourselves and our and our thoughts as individuals in a way that society doesn't really give us a, ch- a chance to you know everything is so fast in this sort of capitalist haze um that we never really get a second to process emotions so when poetry allows for that space i think uh, a lot of sort of metamorphoses can begin yeah because i've seen that you've also described yourself as an advocate of patience and sifting through the noise would that relate uh, to yeah. that kind of message you're getting across? Yeah, I think I think that's that's uh, that's very much what what I intended to touch on. It's it's this idea that um, 
capitalism just doesn't really allow for that. Our the, our state of existence in this world that, that we're in right now just doesn't really allow for us to process emotions. It doesn't really allow for us to maybe even sit with um, sit with uh, our our traumas or you know it's like things that I have grown to call everyday traumas. And the reason I call them everyday traumas is because uh, society forces us to sort of skip past them so so quickly and so uh so hurriedly so um i think art allows for a space for us to recognize that and and perhaps start to think about well what impact did uh society's um society's voice have a uh so sort of what what impact did society's voice have on my psyche on my emotional well-being um and how has that impacted my life and how can i change that if i want to change that or how can i just grow to understand it you know yeah i think um what you call unadulterated honesty is seems to be really core to to how you write um you're quite prepared, it seems, to have that exposure, um, which is an act of bravery um, because that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, it is definitely a hard thing to do. I think um, I'm perhaps lucky in the sense that uh, the art form that I fell in love with naturally pushed me to be... um, to be as open as possible, naturally pushed me to be as vulnerable as possible because um, it was about sharing your unique experience of the world, you know? And, and I think what, what happens is when we do, I don't know what, what I like to call, um, I don't know, some sort of introspective uh, excavation or some sort of deep dive within what we find is our true unique experience of the world and and of perception and reality. Um, not to say that I don't think it, uh, it it doesn't have its dangers, you know. I think, you know, sometimes it can be uh, it can be way more valid and way more sort of wise to to go into those deep, vulnerable feelings in your own time, whilst not pushing them to create a product, whether that's a piece of poetry for art's sake or whether it's for, uh, for you know, from societal pressure to do so. But I think uh, it's about what feels right to you and, and nurturing um, nurturing the, uh, the best way that you can feel open and vulnerable and honest with yourself and, and not feel pressurized, you know? Yeah, because when you talk about that deep dive, um, that process, if you like, of self-reflection, sometimes it's talked mm-hmm. about, you know, in mindfulness practice. But that that chance yeah. to have that deep dive is also a chance just to simply be curious. And even mm-hmm. that act of curiosity is is healthy. Did Did you find that your curiosity of words is immense? So did you find that once yeah. you kind of allowed yourself to be in that space, it was therapeutic in some way? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, I, I, I believe my my curiosity uh, for language uh, is uh, it, it, it's an interesting one. It's, it's paradoxical and, and it's full of nuance. Uh, I grew up uh, in a very faith-based background. I grew up in the church and I grew up uh, having to read the Bible you know, or having the Bible, biblical script, scripture read to me. And what that does in a way is uh, give somebody who is young and pro- who perhaps doesn't have a grasp of certain uh, metaphorical imagery or, or, or certain vocabulary, it puts it puts the the vocabulary in their face and it, and it shows them that there is an emotional impact to the language without there having to always be a logical, theoretical impact. Um you know, I think about like the church setting when something is said that perhaps I didn't have um, logical grasp on in terms of its vocabulary. I still noticed that there was an emotional impact of it. And I think that was the same for the congregation. If the pastor was to read a biblical scripture that felt right, that rolled off the tongue right, um, that I think the the understanding and the deeper message of what is being said under the words uh, reaches on a on a on a more sort of vibrational emotional level even if the language doesn't quite reach our level of understanding and i think that somewhat allows for deeper understandings of language to take language and think well how can we break this apart and look at it deeper 
um, into uh, deeper beyond its surface sort of thing. And um, I think that that taught me really early on to uh, engage in poetry. You know, it's like I think it taught me uh, like an ease with language where I didn't have to obsess over uh, am I using the right uh, literary form? Does this word mean this? Is this being used in the right context? Because I think often uh, going into an art form with that kind of mind state around language can sort of stifle us and, and put us in a box way too early. Um, and I, I am also very, very dyslexic. So uh, I think naturally my, my tendency is to take a word and, uh, you know, mis misuse it. And, and and I think sometimes that can be a beautiful thing because sometimes it allows you to uh, understand something that uh, perhaps you wanted to say that you that you didn't know, you know, and it perhaps sometimes allows you to get a, a way more playful uh, grasp of language. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, my 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 relationship to language has definitely been somewhat therapeutic and it's definitely definitely been an, an emotional relationship rather than um, a logical relationship. Yeah, and that seems to describe a really important relationship around freedom, um, freeing up language. So we talk about breaking barriers, don't we? Societal barriers, whether it's, um, you know, race, identity, sex. There are far too many barriers that, that, mm -hmm. that each of us can face. But it's interesting when you start to actually consider the barriers and confines of language so um, and your reflection on that. Yeah, your reflection yeah. on that is really sending out an important message. I mean, I think it's so true what you say, because I think, uh, I, I don't know, systems of power and oppression that exist within uh, within our society often rely on language to keep us confined. You know, uh, when when you look at the the words that have come about from uh, from capitalism, from uh, from systems of, of power in in this society, in this world, we see that the the language that has been un, that has been sort of um, that we've been conditioned to engage in or believe over time uh, is very much sort of like the the pillars that hold those systems of power in place, amongst many other things, of course. But I think you're right in pointing out that language is definitely uh, a core element and 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 sort of uh, player in that sort of um, in that power struggle, you know. So and, and I think often you see that when when we start to have discussions as 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 a community about breaking down or 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 speaking against certain systems of oppression i think often people have an issue with language and that always seems to be a cause for contention um so it's definitely something that we need to think about um and and think maybe think about uh ways that we can that we can uh, get rid of, uh, that, that we can drop our attachment to language. Because I think sometimes we have an unhealthy attachment to words um, that perhaps can just, you know, stifle us further. Yeah, I think that's really significant because you can easily see language as a, as a hierarchy as well. There, there can be yeah. academic elitism, for example, uh -huh. you know, that can inhibit other people. Um, hence, you know, how interesting it is that in many ways you're kind of revolutionising the hip hop space in terms of poetry because, of course, it's so easy for people to leap to the stereotypes of gangster rap and violence. Yeah. Uh -huh. But actually, you might argue that it always was a space for poetry and therapy. Yes, that's so so beautiful that you say that because um, I think you're right. This is usually the racist sort of narrative that that um, that gives birth to itself from the society that you know it's like hip hop or let's say this art form that comes from black people um, is something that is violent or uncivilized or you know something that is overly concerned with. Um, w with materialism and material wealth, and and I think the issue is that um, there is a version of 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 the art form that gets played out and that gets sort of like pushed to the center, and and that I, I believe that's very much because we live in a capitalist society that also speaks to these themes of material wealth, that speaks to these themes of. Um, 
uh, you know, that, that speaks to these themes of, uh, I guess, oppressive systems of power. But when you, you're right, when you look way deeper into the culture, and, and it doesn't even take much digging to realize, you see that the very core foundations of hip hop were to uh, de-escalate uh, systems of white supremacy, de-escalate systems of racism, uh, de-escalate and and not not only de-escalate but combat these systems of power right at the core on a community level. They're very radical and they're very emotional. The birth of hip hop came from this idea of the safe space. The house party was was very much a setting where uh, hip hop culture was born from, and you would have people putting putting cardboard onto the floor and people dancing as a means to get out there. There as a means to express themselves, but and and what that did in turn was not only create a safe space for emotional flourishing for expression, but it also meant that uh, in a in a society where uh, where there's lots of poverty, where there's lots of corruption, where there's um, the pressure of a racist uh, sort of like government and society coming down in on the community, it meant that this is a place where we can get out our anger. You know, this is a place that where, where we can. Um, where we can speak about our justified anger against society, this is a this is a place where we have a voice, where we have a platform. Um, so that's really at the core of hip hop, and and I believe that's why it is so radically um, vulnerable and honest when you look at the core of the culture and the art form. You know. Yeah, absolutely, um, and that vulnerability, of course, um, is is often expressions of real courage to do that. I I don't know if you have necessarily seen the documentary series of the the hip hop series that looks at the songs that shook America and it's really it. it's really powerful haven't you mm. I think you might no, even still be able so. to see that on a BBC iPlayer catch up nice. yeah I think uh-huh. it would be of interest to you because it identifies six songs and it's from the point of view that it is shifting from stereotypes of hardcore mm-hmm. gangster rap and, it, and it's almost like violence for violence sake. And it's mm-hmm. much more in the territory of um, the purpose of what all of the hip hop artists were doing and they were changing mm-hmm. barriers. So even if you went into the 90s and in terms of mainstream awareness, Run, D- Run DMC and Aerosmith walk this way would have been a real kind of mainstream hit for a lot of people that wouldn't have really been engaging with hip-hop. And, of course, what they did was really powerful because they were bringing black and white audiences together, which is crazy Mm -hmm. that we still have to even reference that because, you know, that's what Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. were doing and Frank Sinatra, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. But even now we're relying on music and and in these examples hip-hop culture to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I will definitely check that out. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I will, I'll definitely give that a watch. Yeah, because I think um, it's just a reminder that artists um, don't necessarily have the luxury of creating their art. It's very much about mm-hmm. in being in an arena of struggle. Um, yeah, yeah. It's hard for any artist, you know, it's hard for any artist Mm -hmm. to get signed or a record deal. So, of course, artists coming from barriers of discrimination anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think it really highlights that art is so often an arena of, of struggle. Yeah, and 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 I I think just to to sort of like uh, reiterate uh, to go back to that point, I I also do not have a problem with um, with let's say quote unquote gangster rap or quote unquote uh, like any any rap that plays to uh, this uh, stereotype that we spoke about because I believe that at its true core you can sort of see that um, a story is being told. And and so uh, you know it's like uh, it, when people are speaking from their 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 realm of experience, I think that there's nothing more sort of like valuable than that. And I think I think that's how we've grown to understand like many different experiences of many different peoples. You know, is by engaging with the art. I think what my issue is is when you have outer groups people who are outside of the community let's namely like in historical senses in terms of hip-hop sort of like white record label owners come in and say well this is the marketable 
idea of what we need to represent of the culture. This is the thing that we are going to congratulate more than anything else. And this is the thing that we're going to give a platform to rather than anything else. I think that that then becomes an issue because it becomes, well, who is in control of the narrative here? And then uh, what sort of sort of racism is allowed to be injected into the projection of the culture? Um, and as and how society perceives it, you know? So, yeah, I think it's all about who is in control of the narrative. Um, and that's when it gets a little shady. When you look at things historically, you start to see that record companies would swoop in, you know, offer somebody, you know, it's like $100,000 or something of that nature, and then create a golden standard of what should be uh, created and what should be projected in order to gain some sort of financial success, which, which of course is... Uh, manipulation and, and a form of cultural violence you know yeah so branding is part of yeah. the control problem isn't it that that power For of sure. marketing um mm-hmm. and I think that's probably an even heavier burden on artists because even with that awareness in mind um mm-hmm. it's another set of barriers isn't it it's another yeah. it's another sure. David and Goliath battle mm-hmm Definitely. How have you managed the sense of branding around yourself or your own work? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It's it's not really something that I I give too much thought to, um, especially if we go back to this idea of uh, honesty and sort of vulnerability. I guess that becomes your guiding principle in a way, and not only honesty, just in sort of like literary expression, but honesty in sort of um, what feels right musically what feels right in terms of the uh, choices you make within the community, uh, what, you know, it's like what feels right. And and that's also as a, that's also a constant battle because you're in, in this system that we live in, we're constantly having to weigh up what feels right versus what is going to allow us to earn some sort of financial compensation for the work that we do, you know? And sometimes those two things don't always fit together. Um, it's beautiful when they do, when they're harmonious and you can do what feels right and it earns you money. Um, but many times that's not the case. So it's a constant, um, it's a constant battle to, uh, like it's a constant moralistic and ethical battle in a way. And sometimes you just have to let your, your gut guide you and, and, and sort of your intuition guide you there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I wondered, um, Otis, if you knew um, the work of um, a research professor, Brené Brown, because she became like a viral hit on TED Talks. You may have come across her work. If not, I I think it will interest you. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because um, she's done a massive study uh, where she Mm -hmm. talks about the courage to be vulnerable. And you talk about the power of vulnerable expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's lots and lots of synergies there. Um, she describes vulnerability as our most accurate measurement of courage. And I wondered mm. what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, to to an extent, I agree with them. Like, I think that Vulnerability is definitely a, um, I, I guess, a more sort of objective way of measuring courage because you can sort of say, well, uh, this person put themselves in a in a in a sort of position to be uh, exposed, whether that's exposing an insecurity, um, whether that's sort of. Uh, you know, exposing themselves by sharing a, 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 an, a an art form that is that is difficult, or engaging with an art form that is difficult. But I think, um, yeah, what that does, it it does create a sense of community, and it does really sort of like unite people. And I think that's that's why I fell in love with the art form that I did, is because in let's say Kid Cudi being open about his depression, about uh, feeling outcasted, it created a point of relation. I didn't feel so alone in those in those um, situations, but it took his courage to do that. Then there's a, there's a dichotomy sort of inside of me that says, whilst vulnerability can be a form of courage, it can also be very performative. And there's there's we see this historically, and we see this in our current landscape that. Uh, capitalism have has a sneaky way of injecting itself into any sort of radical um i guess uh, radical activity and i think capitalism has a way of doing that with vulnerability where it becomes about how honest and how open can you be 
in order to market yourself as such, you know, and and it's like uh, you have brands sort of latching on to the idea of vulnerability in order for them to sell a product. And I think we we see this with with concepts of like self care, for example, you know, self care being somewhat something radical in a, as we said in a constant rush of things, it could be so meaningful to take that moment of self care if if what that moment means is giving time for your emotional flourishing, for giving time for whatever it is you truly need. However, what we see is we see sort of brands being like, take time to eat your favorite brand of ice cream or, you know, take some time to go shopping at the Gucci store, for example. So uh, capitalism has a sneaky way of, of usurping uh, these radical ideas. And I, I also am aware that there's there's a paradox in, in vulnerability being honest and, and vulnerable sometimes it can be unwise and it can be unhurt and it can be hurtful you know if we push people to be vulnerable at the wrong time we can perhaps disturb uh traumas that weren't ready to be disturbed that weren't ready to sort of um be explored or perhaps in a landscape or a space that wasn't safe for those things to be uh, exposed so i think it is very much down to the individuals uh volition and and sort of using their uh guiding principle for that and and also i think sometimes People who have been the most courageous perhaps don't have the luxury of being the most vulnerable sometimes, you know? People who have been through traumatic events, who have survived uh, unimaginable things. You know, I think about um, I think about uh, some of my family her- heritage and uh, some of my family that escaped Nazi Germany and, and sort of survived the Holocaust. And I think, like, that was already such a... Uh, a mountainous thing to survive um that perhaps being vulnerable about it and speaking openly about it um would be would be tremendously difficult to to bring up all that trauma straight away you know so i i think it's i think sometimes we've gone through we we have exercised our courage to the to the maximum and um we need then a safe space at some point to talk about it but sometimes vulnerability uh in 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 a, in the moment isn't always the um isn't always the best option you know yeah um because also it's removing a relationship that can arrive with shame you know if you feel vulnerable and you associate that to being weak and then you feel ashamed which none Mm. none of which is justified but unfortunately is so often the connections that are made it's Mm -hmm. indeed being very careful whether it's your own self-reflection or or in a therapy type relationship that as you approach vulnerability you're not inviting in shame Mm -hmm. the mind is too good at uh automatic negative thinking and prejudiced habitual thinking Mm, and I think what mm. your poetry is doing is literally smashing those barriers of language as we mentioned Mm. earlier you're 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 inviting people to think again about their own thoughts Mm, mm, thank you so much yeah just an additional thought on that I think um sometimes it's a tremendous privilege to to be vulnerable in an artistic sense you know um sometimes it, i i believe it's 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 privilege that also allows for that you know and 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 when i say that i mean to to be vulnerable in this artistic sense sometimes requires uh space for reflection and space for philosophy and and if you're in a, a place in society where you are constantly having to work, where you're constantly having to exercise all your emotional, physical energy just to merely survive, um, then this idea of artistic vulnerability becomes very much a, a, a sort of privilege and 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 something that not everybody can can exercise the time for. You know. Oh, absolutely. I think that Mm -hmm. is really, really significant. And it's one of the factors that's problematic in terms of how the art suffers from elitism, because there's a lot of privilege in order to be able to be an artist, unless, of course, you are in that, that space of such deep exposure that Mm -hmm. risk is what you know anyway. It's kind of one extreme or the other, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. I think yeah. I think it really does remind you that art um, 
is very much a radical act, depending particularly on the circumstances of the artist. Yeah, true. Um, do, do you feel that you've, yeah, do you feel radical in your, in your own right from that point of view? Uh, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I would, it would be so nice to say yes. It would be so nice and like, uh, it would align with what I uh, believe outside of, outside. like if I was to separate myself from me engaging in my art, to say that the art form was radical um, would be in line with my belief system. But if I was to be 100% honest, I think sometimes selfish intention is the reason why I would create the art form that I create. And then my hope is somehow, somehow miraculously, in me being honest through some form of self selfish intention, um, and that selfish intention being sometimes to literally see myself represented on the page or to archive my very existence in a world that uh, I feel constantly fearful about or in a world that I feel constantly um, like I have no grasp or control over or in a world where uh, I fear my mortality. These are somewhat all selfish reasons, but what my hope is that in churning that out, um, we all exist under this thing called the human condition and, and the hope is that people do relate and the hope is then it can go on to have some sort of transformative effect or some sort of community-centric effect. But I would like to think it's radical. To, to be totally honest, I think it, it is more um, uh, self-induced and I think it is more sort of like an, an, an introspective, intimate um, uh, 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 relationship, you know? Yeah. Of course, we're talking today in the horrifying context of, of a war, of the war on Ukraine mm-hmm. and yeah. the existential threat of yeah. that war, the vulnerability that the world is facing, you know, that grip of anxiety and the horror of the kind of paralysis we all have around it as well that it's you know something so Mm. such an atrocity can't just be stopped Mm. I wondered even if you had thoughts on that kind of global scale around trauma when we mentioned trauma earlier you know and the importance of being able to express trauma albeit carefully so that there's no further damage can you even begin to imagine how there's going to be um, expressions of trauma out of Ukraine alone, you know, let alone Yemen, let alone Afghanistan, let alone Syria, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, I just wondered what your thoughts were when you look at all of these men who are being told to stay and fight, what mm-hmm. your own anxieties are around, around their trauma. You know, it is it's horrifying and and it's it's um, an exact representation of where we are in in the world right now. And I honestly and wholeheartedly uh, do not have the level of um, wisdom and and understanding to uh, to to engage hopefully in that in that conversation, because I think. I can only ever speak from a, a level of privilege. I have not engaged in any, I have not been affected by immediately by any form of war. Um, I mean, historically and, and in my family, I have been affected by uh, forms of war and forms of, of racial oppression, but I can, I can definitely not speak on, on sort of that, that level of trauma because I think, I think often uh, in we manoeuvre through society and we see, you know, we're, we're seeing a constant influx of uh, of pain and murder and, and, and death. And um, though it is horrifying, I think what it does by not having this proximity towards it and not having a true understanding of it and also not having, as I said, back to this capitalist uh, tendency to not give us time to actually process these things, what it truly does is, is create a sense of numb. And I think sometimes... In my case, that numbing is coming from a, a proximity, a, a distant proximity to to war and and death, and which is which is a sense of privilege. So I truly cannot speak on it. You know, um, all I all I can say is I know that um, it's it's horrifying what is happening in 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 Ukraine. It's also horrifying 
the murder that has been happening in Palestine, the murder that happens in Syria. And um, I think, sadly, what, what happens is... Uh, we we often as a as a western society and um as a product of whiteness and and racism in society can so easily distance ourselves from the murder that happens in syria the murder that happens in palestine uh, afghanistan um but we all of a sudden feel something so visceral about what's happening in ukraine as we should as we should feel uh, what is happening but i think it it definitely makes a note of um our level of privilege and how uh what speaks to us you know and um yeah i i yeah. I, I personally uh do not believe in any form of war i do not believe in any form of military mm-hmm. i do not believe in um i i think the end result is always murder and death and uh i think the point is to always think about well how can we how can we support communities and individuals and oppressed peoples who are always impacted the worst by these situations um and yeah i i am true i'm i'm far too uh sort of um my my privilege is far too comfy for me to truly talk on the trauma that those people are experiencing in real time you know Mm -hmm. what you do however do in your work is is talk very clearly about compassion but in terms of compassionate action you know it's not just Mm -hmm. a point of view I think um it's interesting where you describe yourself I'll quote you as a catalytic converter transforming external world toxins into poems of hope (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and I thought that was really powerful because it's kind of stating your purpose you know your poetic purpose is compassionate compassionate action how how would you expand on that yeah, no, thank you so much for quoting that. So that's that's a line from from the book Safe Metamorphosis. And um yeah, how would I expand on that? I, I think it very much is the access to everything, uh or the axes to everything that we've been speaking about, you know, this idea that um the world gives us something and if you have time to process it, if you have the mental space and 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 uh, and this, uh, you know, the opportunity to process it, what we can do is create something beautiful out of that. Not only something beautiful that other people can re- relate to, but something uh, that allows us to understand our state of existence and our state of struggle. Um, so I'm very much for thinking about how to take the scenic route with language, thinking about how to beautify what we our pain and and um, and adorn it in a way that, that that we can experience and have joy out of it. You know, um, there's there's the biblical scripture, whatever what whatever the devil has made for uh, for bad, God will make for good. You know, and to take that outside of its sort of like biblical context or the you know it's like its spiritual connotations, but to just put it into the realm of of art as it relates to life. Um, whatever pain and whatever trauma has been has been forced onto us. Um, I believe art gives us an opportunity to to not only find therapy in it, but also uh, find joy in it, you know, at some point. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's remaining mindful of the, the power of optimism and hope and, and joy mm-hmm. uh, to not only be defeated, yeah. you know, by all the, the stresses and horrors of life. Definitely. Otis, what what would you say explains why a poem can speak but we may not talk to each other wow that's such an interesting question hmm that's 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 uh that really speaks to me um i think it's because well i think there's many reasons but i think one of the reasons is because um vulnerability being core to this question i think we struggle to we struggle to face ourselves and we see ourselves in other people and it's it's almost it's almost sometimes too much of a high volume of ourselves to experience you know to to look somebody in the face and experience their humanness and do that with compassion with empathy with understanding is sometimes far too overstimulating for our for ourselves to sort of bear especially when we're dealing with our own insecurities especially when we're dealing with our own societal uh I don't know, struggles and the systems of oppression and and trying to navigate those. Sometimes it's so hard to um, 
see those and relate to those in other people, which is sad and it's a bit of a curse of the human existence. But then I do believe that the art is a form of, is a bridge in that sense. And it allows us to put ourselves in the piece of art in a way that maybe is a little more digestible and maybe speaks to something that's a little more emotionally universal, um, where we can see our, our fellow person in something that we can understand, you know, in something that we can process in our own time. Uh, so, somehow, something, uh, something of what Jericho Brown, uh, the incredible poet, said comes to mind. And he speaks about poetry, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he speaks about poetry having a relationship to uh, beauty and the, like, the aesthetic of beauty and, you know, how he would relate that to our uh our need for trees almost you know it's a it's a it's a relationship of beauty we don't quite know why we need trees or why we need poetry but if we didn't have them we would definitely notice it and and something would be a lot more bleak um so i i i find that quote mm. and, and i find what he said they're so beautiful and, and it allows me to sort of resonate with um this idea that perhaps something doesn't always have to be uh analyzed or you know sort of picked apart um, objectively and logically but sometimes things can just speak to us emotionally you know thinking about back to what we spoke about with the the uh, level of language that we that we resonate to the emotional side of language the, the emotional face to language and thinking about what transformative impact that can have on us as opposed to us always living in our head you know always it always coming from our head what happens if we were to allow it to come from something a little lower down, you know? Mm. Yeah. I'm interested in your experience of becoming a poet laureate mm -hmm. and your experience of managing that label, if you like. It kind of makes you almost like an official spokesperson or or does it impose anything that you didn't expect? I just wondered what kind of judgments you may have dealt with yeah, sure. Um, I mean, when I when I was asked to do the role in uh, 2018, uh, it was it was a privilege, and it was also sort of uh, like a big uh, anxiety-inducing idea as well, because um, I was aware that there was a responsibility behind it, and I was aware that I was going to be uh, asked questions that I perhaps sometimes wouldn't be prepared, wouldn't have been prepared to answer, you know, um, and. I think with a role that has been traditionally uh, exercised under ideas of elitism, ideas of white supremacy, uh, it was always going to be something radical to uh, for me to be the poet laureate, especially with no literary training, uh, traditionally no literary training, given the fact that I didn't come from, uh, let's say, a, a classical or traditional poetry background. My my artistic influences from the realm of, of music is from the realm of jazz, from the realm of hip hop, um, from the realm of spoken word and performance poetry, which often gets uh, snuffed by the elitist idea, you know, when trying to exist in spaces of academia or, or spaces of more traditional poetry. Um, so I started to learn that very quick. I started to realize that that was the case. Um, however, on the flip side, it was very easy to ignore that in the face of all the beauty that the role uh, brought about, you know, um, I got the opportunity to speak to groups of young people that I would have never had the opportunity to, to talk about this uh, beautiful art form that I learned through hip hop, this art form of expression, this art form of, of rap poetry. Um, and, and I think it was meaningful to talk to people about that and, and sort of uh, let them know what sort of transformative effect it had on me and sort of see if there is grounds and space for it to have that transformative effect on them. You know, I got to do things like deliver my first public lecture on hip hop philosophy and, 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 and poetry. And, and, um, I got to deliver my, uh, uh deliver seminars as, as part of the, uh, the actual literature cur curriculum at Sheffield university and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, the, the beauty far outweighed the, the, uh, the challenges. Um, but yeah, it was always interesting for me to be asked sort of like, well, who are your favorite poets? And them always are sort of expecting me to, I don't know, cite William Wordsworth or I remember uh, when I first yeah. <laughs> 
when I first became poet laureate, there was a there was some sort of like sub article on the online version. I think it was in the Star of how oh, Ismenza is not a real poet. William Wordsworth is, a <laughs> and uh, so I always found that quite amusing. Um, especially when in the face of yeah. that, would be like, well, my favorite poets are Blackfoot of the Roots, and sort of seeing people, uh, you know, shake under uh, under the idea that this elitist idea couldn't continue on, but also shake under the idea that perhaps they uh, weren't the expert. Perhaps they uh, had something to learn. Perhaps there was a level of curiosity there too, um, which is always beautiful. It's always beautiful mm. to shake people's um, ideas about art and shake people's preconceived uh, ideas about the art that matters in our culture and in, in, in our personal lives, you know? So it was an interesting journey. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and when you're facing those challenges, you know, because you have a new label or a new definition mm-hmm. or identity, you know, of what you do, when you feel fearful, how do you manage it? Yes. Uh no, that's a that's a great question. I think um I think to be honest, when it comes to sharing my art, um, I tend not to feel fearful. And and that can sound sort of uh, egotistical, or, or it can even sound as though it's coming from a place of deep courage. But sometimes I don't think it is. I think sometimes it comes from a place of naivety. You know, um, I was definitely uh, raised in an art form that tells you that your ideas matter, that your ideas, um, that, as I as I spoke about before, that you have a unique story to to sort of uh, share. And and sort of once you grasp the the feeling of that, even though that idea can be shaken by, by you know, as artists, we compare ourselves to other people and, and our self-esteem can often be on the chopping block. Um, so, you know, wh- but when that's not the case and when you do have this form of unbridled self-assurance in your story, uh, as I think all of us should do, um, fear d- isn't a factor that, that seeps into sharing art, you know? So, um I have a, a, an interesting relationship with fear because I experience fear a lot in my day-to-day life. I experience fear a lot when it comes to thinking about mortality, when it comes to thinking about choices, when it comes to thinking about societal expectations, should I say, or family or you know any of the above, romance or any of the above. I experience so much fear. Um, and it's so beautiful to me that art is this safe space where actually fear is is something that that can't see its way in and sort of art and expression is this imperishable um unbridled unbridled state of sort of um sort of existence and sharing you know yeah from that point of view is the performance space the live performance space natural to you or is that an act of courage I would love to say it's an act of courage, but it is 100% natural to me. I feel a little more closer to the person that I am when I'm performing on stage. I feel like I can truly be myself. Um, that's not to say that there's not fabrication, and that's not to say that there's not performance, given that it exists under stage light, on stage. Um but it, it just feels aligned with what I have always conditioned myself to believe is my purpose, you know? So I think two things align. My my childhood teenage self is saying, yes, you were right. <laughs> and um, on the on the flip side, I'm also getting some healthy, um, some healthy dopamine and some healthy sort of uh, seeing my uh, ideas represented in the world and seeing them, you know, you create in this sort of, introverted intimate space that is often cut off from the rest of the world or just your life as an artist creating and 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 and, uh, ongoing with your creative endeavors is sometimes isolating so to see your ideas come to life as they pertain to people and how people feel and people's emotions and an actual tangible non-ineffable physical community is so so joyous and is so so meaningful. So whenever I get uh, chances to perform, it just feels right, and fear doesn't get a chance to sort of niggle its way in. Yeah, that's just really interesting. Um, it's a really interesting way of, of of being able to control fear, isn't it? Um, from, mm-hmm. from taking over. 
it does seem that there's a role for encouraging curiosity and courage uh, in ways um, that aren't asking too much, but to really inviting some sense of freedom and some sense of ownership instead of what can feel like capitalistic oppression, a a dumbing down or a numbing, like you said Mm -hmm. earlier, you know, that starts to deprive people from their own acts of curiosity and courage. Um, Would you say there's a case to, to almost encourage that, to encourage engaging in being curious and and being courageous in ways that are feasible, Uh, which may be through art. mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, I feel like that that's the, that's the uh, resonance of which our life vibrates best. You know, when we can feel that um, our Mm. courage is, is sort of pushing us into our, our sense of purpose or pushing us into a space where we not only feel comfortable, but go beyond feeling comfortable and we're able to flourish. Um, And what does that mean? That means that we're able to emotionally accept ourselves, perhaps even able to physically accept ourselves, despite societal uh, 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 society's voice always having something to say about that. Um, I think when we can feel like that, uh, we're in our true uh, we're in our true skin and we're in our true sort of uh, purpose for life, if you will. Um, and I, I'm a firm believer of whatever realm or vehicle that that takes, that that's okay. You know, I believe artists can exist in any form and walk of life. You know, an artist doesn't always have to be somebody who creates the product of art, but an artist can be somebody who uh, injects their artistry into their social work, who injects their artistry into their therapy, who injects their artistry into the way that they engage with the community. Um, I think there's so many things in this, there's so many things that we lack in the society. So if you have found a way to uh, create a solution for for the huge sort of um, boundless lack that that this world gives us, uh, I think that's an art in and of itself, and I think that's in line with uh, a humanistic and soulful purpose. Yeah, yeah, and purpose is is so important. Um, as you know, ha- having a clear purpose is so important. Yeah. Um, Unbelievably, Otis, the the hour flies by too fast. But there is a question I'd like to. It's it's amazing how fast it goes. Uh, You'll have to be a guest in every season. (laughs) There's too much (laughs) to talk about. (laughs) But um, something I would be interested in, in in closing on it in response to the series, the question that's posed: Cannot save us. I'm really interested in your description of art, and I'll quote you. Pain gave birth to art, although they never did see eye to eye. Art cared only for liberation from its predecessor. Mm, I love that, (laughs) and I just wondered if you wanted to, you know, for the listeners to talk about, you know, what was in your mind and what, what it is you're saying. Yeah, no, uh, thank you so much for sharing that. So then then again, that's another quote from uh, from the book Safe Metamorphosis. And, um, you know, it was speaking to this idea that, that the artist always has to delve into a, 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 a cauldron or, a, a, or a, a, a puddle or a well of pain in order to create something. And I thought about that idea and I thought about how meaningful it is to see our pain represented uh, in in a way that I said is sort of beautified, but also understandable, and that we can relate to, and creates a sense of community. Um, but then I think about the sort of negative connotations that that might have. Does that mean artists have to exist under a constant state of uh, proximity to pain? And I thought about, well, no, actually, it doesn't, because art, as as the line says, art really doesn't care too much about your pain. It really only cares about the transformation. It really only cares about the metamorphoses that can come from it. Um, and that's where art can sort of save the world and change the world. I don't believe art for art's sake can save the world and change the world. But I believe art's ability to have um, uh, uh, sort of liberation from the pain that we go through can really spark the change in society that we need. You know, you know, I think about any form of social movement 
that has existed. I always say I dare you to find the piece of art that wasn't playing in the background, that wasn't fulfilling people with the soul that they needed to keep on going, you know? Um, so in that sense, yes, art art has um, has a great need to sort of see itself free from pain. And I think what we can do is we can learn from that and, and, and inject that into our societies, into our communities, and just into our own personalized lives. Yeah, I think mean, that's such a, a beautiful and important um, sentiment and statement, really. Again, when we're in a war context, unbelievably, you know, the, the, the issue of pain. Um, mm-hmm. Otis, I can't thank you enough for your time and your generosity uh, of your time today. Um, thank you so much. We'll make sure that uh, listeners know where to find you in, in the text to the podcast series. Um, just to close, are there any any final words you'd like to share in terms of whoever is going to be listening, whether it's words of hope um, or just a sentiment that you'd like people to take away from listening to this podcast today? Um, I guess uh, uh, something that resonates with me is 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 this idea that um that we shouldn't let ourselves sort of be confined by by rules and and sort of whatever it is that you're trying to engage in in whatever art form that you see yourself being freed by or freed inside of participating in don't let yourself be stifled by the rules of that art form or the traditions of that art form um whether that's literary modes whether that's conventions uh and and again i think understanding that we have uh such a deep uh sense of purpose within within us that doesn't always have to be sort of represented logically but sometimes can have soulful and emotional meaning and power and sometimes that's completely enough you know so that everybody's story matters that everybody uh has something to share um and that we can share that at our own volition in our own time using our own forms of communication and our own forms of art um, and that's meaningful enough thank you thank you so much Otis and I am very much looking forward to the next book of poems and, and following your work thank you again thank you so much